Welcome back to RUF. It's great to see everybody back. Hope you had a good break. Let me see. Um, let, me, let me begin by just giving two quick announcements. Uh, number one, or just by way of welcome, I say this every semester multiple times, but I want to say it again. Uh, we are a place, RUF, we desire to be a place for you to come no matter where you are. Uh, so if you're struggling spiritually, maybe you're filled with doubt, maybe you're filled with unbelief, maybe you're just not really sure what you think about Christianity, you're welcome here. And I hope you feel welcome here. The second thing is you might be struggling with sin. You might feel broken and empty. And I hope this is a place where you can feel that you can come and struggle. Uh, struggle and actually experience the thing that all of us need the most, and that is uh, Jesus Christ. And so I hope that uh, you are pointed to him during your time uh, this semester in coming to RUF. So welcome uh, to all of you, wherever you're coming from tonight. We're so glad you're here. Uh, and if I don't know you, I would love to meet you. And so please come up and introduce yourself to me. Uh, after this is over, I'd love to meet you. The second thing is I want to make an announcement about our spring conference. Uh, the spring conference is February the 15th and 16th. It's one night. We'll leave here 3 o'clock. We'll drive to Birmingham. Uh, we, we'll go to Covenant Presbyterian Church where we will have good Birmingham barbecue. And Bill Boyd, who is the pastor there, many of you might know him, uh, he will speak to us about the gospel in the city and the gospel in the poor and Jesus' heart for the poor. And then uh, we will spend the night uh, in uh, Mountain Brook in a hotel, the Hampton Inn. And then the next morning, we will serve Daniel Kaysen. He's a ministry. He runs a ministry in inner city Birmingham. And there's a huge event going on. Last year, they fed like 5,000 people, um, homeless people. And so we are going to, this is actually kind of a mix of, we're going to have a little bit of teaching, but the majority of the conference will be us actually putting hands and feet to the gospel and serving those around us. Uh, and so I hope, and then we'll be back, you will be back in Oxford by 8 o'clock, if not before, on Saturday night, one night. I hope you'll make plans uh, to go. It's going to be a great time, and a great time for you to get to know uh, someone new as well. To register for the conference, you need to text me. It's $45, which is a bargain, by the way. Uh, $45, and all you've got to do is text me. My number's on the handout, on the announcement sheet, and just say, I want to go to Spring Conference I will put you on the list, or you can register online uh, on our website. And the address is printed for you on the bottom of the announcement sheet as well. So anyway, those are my two announcements. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. I'm going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. If you don't have your Bible, you can look on on the announcement sheet printed on the handout. There's lots of things that I could say in an introduction to the book of Acts. That's the book that we're going to be studying this semester. Remember, we did Old Testament last semester. Uh, we believe all Scripture is breathed out by God. And one of the ways we communicate that is we normally rotate in RUF between the Old Testament 
in New Testament. Last semester we did the Ten Commandments. This semester we're doing the Book of Acts. And, I, and out of all the things I could say in an introduction to the Book of Acts, one of the things I want to convince you of is that there is a smell of intrigue in these opening verses to the book of Acts. Really the smell of intrigue uh, that will filter through the entire book, page after page, chapter after chapter of the book of Acts. It doesn't take long to read the book of Acts and to realize that something is being plotted here. Something lethal is being plotted And Luke dares to picture for us in these early pages, in these early verses of the book of Acts, Jesus of Nazareth in his heavenly enthronement. Not simply a leader of a ragtag bunch of rebellious Jews. Luke pictures Jesus as the cosmic king of the universe. A dangerous movement is unfolding on these pages. And I think you'll see what I mean tonight as we look at our chap, uh, verse, verses 1 through 11 in chapter 1, but also uh, throughout our study of the book of Acts. Before we begin looking at our passage, let me pray and ask God to be with us. Father in heaven, we ask that you would come. And through your Spirit, uh, we are helpless uh, without your Spirit and without you showing up tonight to understand this passage. We are that helpless, you tell us, uh, in your Word. And so, would you come and be kind and be gracious to us in such a way that you would, as you tell us, your Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces the bone and the marrow Would you come and do that? Father, it might be painful, but we really want to change, and we really want to grow. And so would you do your work with your word tonight? Most importantly, would you show us Jesus? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Over Thanksgiving break, my family, Susie and our four girls, we headed to... Charleston, South Carolina. My wife's family lives uh, in, all in South Carolina. Her parents live in Greenville, South Carolina, and her sister lives in Charleston. Charleston is a cool city, so we decided to gather as a family in Charleston this year uh, during Thanksgiving. We were very excited about this trip for multiple reasons. Here are a few. One, our girls never get to see their cousins because they live like 12 hours away. And so they were just really pumped up about seeing their cousins and ready for a great week. But also, we had tons of fun things planned. Susie and I ran our first race together ever. Yes, I know that's sad, but I ran my first 5K over uh, uh, Thanksgiving. We did the turkey trot. They call it the gobble wobble or something crazy like that. (laughs) And I was wobbling. but we did a turkey trot, and we were going to do it like with all her brothers and sisters, and so we were going to get out of the house on Thanksgiving. You know, Thanksgiving's normally boring, and you're looking for something to do, so we had these, some fun things planned as a family. We were going to go on Charleston Harbor, uh, because they have a boat, and we were going to uh, tour Charleston Harbor. Uh, but the biggest thing was a couple of weeks before we left, Susie's sister called and said, hey... I want to give you all, I'll I'll keep your girls, and you all just go in downtown Charleston 
spend the night in a nice hotel, have dinner, have fun, enjoy a night without your kids. And we were like, this is incredible. We hadn't done this in a long time. And so we were pumped about this trip. It's 12 hours to Charleston, okay? And so we decided to break up the trip. We were going early. We were going to leave on Monday, and we were going to break up the trip. So we were going to Greenville, which is eight hours from Oxford, and we were going to spend the night with our parents and then get up the next day and go to Charleston. The trip goes fine. Our girls are actually old enough now. Eva's out of the infant stage and more of a toddler, and so she's traveling better. Had a great trip there no meltdowns. We get to Susie's parents' house, and we put the kids to bed. Susie and I go to bed, and all of a sudden, at around 12.30 in the morning, Elizabeth is in all-out meltdown, crying, screaming, but it was one of those screams where you know that something is not right. We run into the room where they were sleeping. Keep in mind, she's sleeping with, Elizabeth is five, she's sleeping with her three-year-old sister, Anne Wright. We run into the room, and Elizabeth had thrown up all over Anne Wright and all in the bed. (laughs) Anne Wright is now in meltdown mode because she's got throw up all over. This is what you've got to look forward to. And so Susie, the plan was, the game plan, was that she would settle Anne right down, get her changed into some new pajamas. She would strip the sheets, put them in the washer, put new sheets on the bed. You know the drill. And so I was going to take care of Elizabeth. So I brought Elizabeth into our room, made a pallet for her, you know, a sleeping bag, had the trash can set there, you know, ready to go. Uh, and I kid you not, every 30 to 45 minutes for the rest of the night, my five-year-old, Elizabeth, was throwing up. I have never in my life, and I mean this, seen any of my kids this sick. And so Susie and I decided to rotate. I would get up one time, she'd get up the next, so nobody's really sleeping well, okay? And I remember at one point looking at Susie, and we were saying, let's just pray that this thing doesn't run through our entire family. So we thought we were good. Elizabeth, the next morning, gets up and she's feeling better. It's kind of the 24-hour thing. Feels weak, uh, but she's not throwing up anymore. Feels better. We get in the car. We have the car packed, ready to head out to Charleston. And right when we start ready, getting ready to head out, it hits Ann Wright. And Ann Wright starts throwing up. That delays our trip. We finished the last leg. I'll, I'll skip some, some of the details, but just to know, here's the picture in your mind that you need to know. We finished this last leg of our trip with all of our girls holding barf bags in their lap <laughs> as we're traveling to Charleston. We had high hopes that this was going to be the trip that we enjoyed life together as a family, that we had tons of fun, but instead it was starting out as a complete nightmare. Have you ever been there where you had high expectations and you were excited about something and then all of a sudden it didn't turn out quite the way that you thought it would? Well, if you've ever been there, that's exactly where the disciples are. In Acts chapter 1, look at verse 6. The disciples are talking to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, 
Are you now at this time going to restore the kingdom of God to who? To Israel. Okay, let me define our terms here. What does it mean? What's the kingdom of God mean? Here's a definition. The kingdom of God means this. The ruling power of God coming back into the world to make things right. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, are you coming now? Notice they said Israel. They, they had a complete misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God was. They thought it was a political arrangement and that, God, that Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans and put the Jewish na- nation back in, rule, back in rule and so that they could dominate once again. They expected one thing. But instead, Jesus gives them something totally different. Look at verse 7 and 8. Remember the question, are you going to now restore the kingdom of God to Israel? Look at how Jesus responds, verses 7 through 9. He basically answers them this way. You'll get the Holy Spirit. You're like, okay. And to make matters uh, even more complicated, after he says that, he ascends into heaven. That's the answer. The kingdom of God Jesus is communicating has come. And it came when Jesus came to earth. And it is here now spiritually is what Jesus is saying. And it's here spiritually, but it will not be here in its fullness until Jesus comes again at the end of time. So you say, well, that's interesting. But Jason, how does the kingdom of God work? And to answer that question, you have to understand the ascension. You see, the ascension of Jesus is the focal point of Acts chapter 1. So the question we're going to answer tonight is, what does the ascension mean? Why is the ascension important at all to Christianity? If you have an outline, you'll see three ways that the ascension is important. First, the ascension ascension teaches us that Jesus is still at work. Secondly, we're going to see that uh, that the ascension teaches us that Jesus is our advocate. And thirdly, we'll finish up with looking that Jesus is with us because of the ascension. Number one, Jesus is still at work. Look at verses one and two. Luke is the writer of the book of Acts, and he sets the scene for us in these first two verses. And he, does, he starts it off by summing up the contents of his gospel, the gospel of Luke. And look at what he says. In the first book, which is the gospel of Luke, Theophilus. Well, let's stop here. Who's Theophilus? We really don't know much about Theophilus, but here's what we do know. He was sophisticated and cultured. And more than likely, he was skeptical of Christianity. And we know that with how the book starts. And we'll get into this uh, in weeks to follow here at RUF. But uh, it's obvious when you look at the first few chapters of how Luke starts and how Acts starts that he was skeptical. Other than that, we don't know any more about Theophilus, but we know he was a person. And look at what he says. He says, in the first book, Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began, notice the emphasis on began, to do and to teach until this day, until Jesus was taken up. up. And so the book of Acts 
And what Luke is suggesting is going to be about what Jesus continues to do and what Jesus continues to teach. Though he has physically ascended before their eyes, he is still spiritually present on earth through the Holy Spirit. And we get further evidence of this when we realize that the word Lord, every time that it is used in the book of Acts, almost always it refers to Jesus. So do you see it? The very first thing that Luke wants to communicate to us is that Jesus is still at work here and now in this world. Here's a question. Do you really believe that? I don't know about you, but here's what I think. I think we do a really good job in our circles and at RUF talking about all the things that Jesus has done. We can talk about his birth. We can talk about his life. We can talk about the crucifixion, his death. We can talk about his burial. We can talk about the resurrection. We do good jobs of talking about those things. We can talk about, like tonight, the ascension. But what if someone were to ask you right now, what is Jesus doing and how is he at work in your life and in your heart and in the world around you? What would you say? Suddenly the question gets a lot harder, doesn't it? Could it be tonight the reason why Jesus feels distant, the reason why he feels uninvolved, the reason why he feels like he's not up to much in your life and in the world around you is because in your heart of, our, heart of hearts, you really don't believe he's still at work actively in the world. You see, oftentimes, here's my view, and maybe you're different, but oftentimes I have this view, you kind of think like Jesus is next to the right hand of the Father, and he's just kind of tapping his foot and twiddling his thumbs, and it's kind of like, okay, you know, when are you going to tell me to go back? (laughs) And it's just like he's just kind of waiting. But we get something very different in the book of Acts. Now, we would never say that out loud as a Christian, But here's the way it's communicated oftentimes and the way that shows up and plays itself out in our lives. It plays itself out that we actually don't believe God's up too much in the world by our non-existent prayer lives. It plays itself out by the fact that anxiety and stress is at an all-time high on the college campus. Rarely, friends, and I'm not one of them either, sadly, but rarely do I encounter a person who really trusts Jesus in the midst of difficult and hard circumstances. Because oftentimes, instead of trusting Jesus and trusting that he somehow is at work, even in the bad things, for your good, if you're a Christian, Instead of trusting Jesus and that he's at work, oftentimes we end up trusting in things that we know will fail us. We end up trusting in things like our bodies and then they kind of start to fall apart and not work right. Or we trust in things like money or our career and then the economy tanks and we 
suddenly lose everything, or we trust in a relationship with a friend or even a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and suddenly that comes apart. We end up trusting in things that we know will fail us and trust, instead of trusting in Jesus who loves us and has our best interest in mind. And all of those things testify to this unspoken assumption that God's real actions were in the past and that he's not really working in the present. When we act as if God wound up our lives and then just flung us out on our own, that kind of thinking shows itself when we make comments like, he did it again. I mean, I know he said he was sorry, but I know he's never going to change. Or when we say things like, I'm never going to change. I've been struggling with this addiction forever. Is there any hope? Or when we say things like, if I don't find some good prospects to marry before I leave here, (laughs) then I'm going to be single for the rest of my life. All of those things are assumptions of not really believing. See, at the core of that is a belief that you don't believe God's at work in your life and in the people around you. Friends, the ascension assures us that Jesus is here and that He is teaching and working through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not a distant King. He's not an absent father, but he is a good shepherd who is in and among the people, walking with them. Why do I tell you that? Because I want you to know tonight that there really is hope for you to change. There really is hope that the person in your life, whether it be your siblings or a friend or a brother or a sister or someone in your family, there really is hope that they can become a Christian the person that you think never will become a Christian can come to know Jesus. And there really is hope that Jesus will provide you the most wonderful spouse that you could ever imagine or dream. The ascension, the first thing it shows us and teaches us is that Jesus is still at work. Secondly, Jesus is our advocate. In the ancient times, there was no separation of powers like there is now. There was no Supreme Court and White House and Congress. The throne, where the king or, king, uh, king or queen sat, was the place of power. Uh, but not only was it the place of power, it was also the place of justice. It was the courtroom. The ascension teaches us that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And the ascension teaches us that Jesus is our intercessor. 1 John chapter 2 teaches us that that Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our lawyer. Jesus is our representative in the courtroom of God, the only courtroom that really matters. Jesus, in any charge that has been or being brought against you, the ascension means that Jesus is your representative. And I think it's very interesting that this imagery of the ascension, we get this courtroom imagery. And the reason why it's interesting is because 
If you're honest tonight, and if I'm honest, every single one of us, doesn't it sometimes feel like you're living in a courtroom? That your life is lived in a courtroom? And if you don't believe me and you're not convinced of that, why is it that there is so much spin in your life? Why are you always spinning things in order to make yourself look better? Why are you so concerned with how you look in your image? Why is it that you hide and spend your life trying to convince others that you're really not that bad? Why do you manage and try to control people's perceptions of you? Why aren't you authentic and real in your relationships, only putting your best foot forward? Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because you and I both know that people are making judgments about us. You and I both know that people are passing verdicts in everything that we do. That's why we please our parents. That's why we work hard to get the attention of someone from the opposite sex. That's why we try to run in all the right social circles. Whatever it is, everything that we're doing, we are striving to get a favorable verdict, aren't we? We're striving to get a favorable ruling from someone else. I saw this as I was preparing for this sermon uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was thinking about this and how it shows up in my life and how I do this. Uh, And I saw it show up in my home uh, with my seven-year-old Kate. She's a first grader at Bramlett Elementary School here in Oxford. We got her this nice winter coat for Christmas. She's got one winter coat that she wears, and she was wearing it before the break. And she went back to school in early January, and she was wearing it and loving it and thought it was great and wanted it for Christmas. And then all of a sudden, a couple of weeks ago, it's, you know, it's been cold here. She's like wearing this real thin kind of like spring coat or fall coat. And I'm like, Kate, what's the deal? I mean, like it's winter. It's 20 degrees outside in the morning. Why aren't you wearing the winter coat? She refused to wear it and said she'd never wear it again. Why? Well, it comes out that one of her classmates had made fun of her and told her that they thought the coat was ugly. I wanted to go kick their butt. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I told her that they thought the coat was ugly. Why? Doesn't she want to wear the coat again? Why? Because she's looking for verdicts. Why is it that my five-year-old Elizabeth a week ago, got a new dress with the applique and all on the front. And she comes walking down the, the steps and she walks right up to her daddy and she says, Daddy, tell me I'm beautiful. She didn't say, do you think I'm beautiful? She didn't say, am I beautiful? She said, tell me that I'm beautiful. Why? She's looking for verdicts. Why do you go home with someone from the levee? 
Why do you go home with someone from the library and take your clothes off and have sex with someone that you don't even know and then wake up the next morning and put your clothes back on and say, this never happened, don't call me. And when you see me on campus, turn and look the other way. And you turn and you walk out. Why? Because you want someone to tell you that you're beautiful. Whether or not they mean it doesn't matter. But to have someone look at you and tell you that they want you and that they think you're beautiful is something that you want more than anything in the world. We desperately, friends, need someone from the outside and notice the emphasis on the outside to look into our lives and to look at us and to say, you matter. To look at us and to say, you're beautiful, you're attractive, you're worth something. And you know as well as I do what they teach you in elementary school and what they, your teachers have told you and what your parents have probably told you. I remember my mom, I would come home from school and I'd be so discouraged over some relationship that I had that was made fun of or talked about. And I would say something and my mom would say, oh, it doesn't matter what people think about you. It only matters what you think about you. That's garbage. <laughs> and the reason why it's garbage is because you know that it doesn't matter if you, if, if you think you're wonderful and great and everyone else thinks you're worthless, then you feel worthless. And so we need someone from the outside to look at us and to say, you're beautiful. You're great. You're really good at that. Why? Well, the Bible says that the reason why every single person in every facet of their life, including myself, is looking for verdicts is because deep down in our hearts, every single one of us, non-Christians included, they know that something is not right and that deep on the inside, there is something horribly wrong with us. And so we will look at anything and everything to make us feel right and to good, good about ourselves. That's part of our heart and the way it works. And so then the question is, so what do we do? The ascension. We've got to understand the ascension because here's what the ascension says. It says that Jesus is our lawyer, that Jesus is our advocate, that Jesus is our representative, and that he represents us before the court and before the Father with anything that is brought against us. So what does that mean? Tim Keller helped me with this and helped me to work this out in my mind. Here's how I've always thought about the ascension and about this idea of Jesus being my advocate. Maybe you're with me here, maybe I'm alone, but I always had this thought of, you know, Jesus, I mess up, I blow it, and Jesus kind of goes to the Father and he's like, Father, he, this Jason, you know, he did it again. Yeah, he did, he did it again. Would you please forgive him? Please just give him one more chance. And you can kind of just feel the father going begrudgingly, well, all right, I'll give him one more chance. I'll forgive him again. But what if it were different than that? 
And you know what? It is different than that. And the reason why it's different than that, because of the ascension. Because the ascension tells us that Jesus is not just pleading for us, but that Jesus is our lawyer. And here's what that means. Any good lawyer that is worth his salt doesn't just go to the lawyer or to the judge and say, hey, let him off the hook, turn the other way. No. If you're a lawyer, what do you do? They make a case for you. Any good lawyer makes a case for you. Here's the case. Hebrews chapter 7. Jesus died on the cross and he paid the debt for your sin. And so here's what the ascension means. Here's how it goes down. Jesus now... Because of the ascension, he, and if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he goes to the Father and he says, Father, Jason did it again. But I'm not asking for mercy. I am asking for justice. Because, Father, I paid this debt with my own life. And it would be unjust of you to demand two payments for the same debt. And so I'm asking for full acquittal. I'm asking for justice. Do you see it? Friends, that is an indestructible case. And here's what it means. The ascension means that the verdict is in on you. If you're a Christian, the ascension means that regardless of what you did over the break that you feel guilty and horrible about. That in the eyes of the only court that really matters, you're loved. You're successful. You're valued. You're worth something. And you're accepted. The ascension means that Jesus is still at work. It means that Jesus is your advocate and he presents an indestructible case before the Father on your behalf. And thirdly, it means, and very briefly, it means that Jesus is with you. Look at verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Very interesting. You can turn there later. In John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene, Jesus has been resurrected. The tomb is empty. People are saying, we can't find the body. We don't know where Jesus is. Mary Magdalene, you remember, she runs to the tomb and she's looking and she's frantic because she can't find Jesus. And then all of a sudden you hear Jesus call her name and she turns... And and she turns and she goes, she sees Jesus and she goes and puts her arms around him and hugs him tightly. Notice how Jesus responds when you look at that passage. You don't have to now, but it's very odd. Jesus says, do not hold on to me because I have to go and be with the Father. The phrase, do not hold on to me, means to cling tightly. So it's, the picture is that Mary Magdalene is squeezing the life out of Jesus. Like when somebody comes up behind you and gives you a big bear hug and it like <gasps> kind of takes your breath away. That's the picture of what Mary Magdalene is doing with Jesus. Why is she holding him so tightly? 
Because she doesn't want to lose him. She doesn't want him to leave earth. She wants him to be just as he is. And Jesus says, if I ascend, then you'll get the Holy Spirit. And I will come into your heart and you'll never lose me again. The reason why the ascension is so important is because it means that Jesus will always be with you. It means that Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you, but always hold you tightly in the palm of his hand. I heard a story this week, Paige Benton Brown. She was an old Miss grad several years ago. And she went to see her brother in Augusta, Georgia. And they went to church. She went to church with he and his family. And on this particular Sunday, there was a couple that was having their four adopted boys. They had adopted four boys from the Ukraine, and they were having them baptized on this particular Sunday. They left and went to lunch, Paige and her brother and his family. And here comes into the restaurant this couple with the four adopted boys from the Ukraine. And so Paige lightheartedly goes up and introduces herself and kind of lightheartedly says, wow, you know, four boys, what were you thinking? Tell me about it. And the woman, the mother replied and said, well, you know, we were only supposed to come back with three. We were only supposed to adopt three. And we had gone through all of the paperwork. And if, you've, if your family's adopted someone or if you know friends that have, it's a lot of work and interviews and background checks and paperwork. She said, we had gone through all of that and it came time for us to go get our three boys that we were going to adopt. And so we walk into the orphanage and we were ready to bring them back. And the five-year-old looked and said, I'm not leaving without my bed buddy. And the workers of the orphanage got down on their knees and looked at this five-year-old in the eye and said, you must go. This is your dream. This is any kid's dream. You're going to have parents. And you're going to America. You must go. And she said, the five-year-old grabbed his bed buddy's hand and said, no, I'm not leaving without him. And so she left with four boys. The ascension means intimacy with Jesus. The ascension means that Jesus is not leaving without you. And He's given you the Holy Spirit to guarantee that He will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, oftentimes when we think about the cross, I know I do this in my own life, but I think about the cross and we think it's something Jesus had to do, which yes, that's true because without the shedding of blood, there's no wiping away of sin. So yes, that's true. But more than that, we don't often think about the joy that Jesus had in going to the cross. Why is it joyful? Because you are the person that he couldn't leave without. Friends, 
Jesus, the gospel says that Jesus grabs you by the hand and he looks at the Father and he says, I'm not leaving without Gary. I'm not leaving without Hayden. Father, I'm not leaving without Joseph and without Allison. I'm not leaving without you. If that makes its way down into our hearts, friends, the ascension means that Jesus holds you tight. And it means that Jesus will never let you go. And when that penetrates our hearts, guess what? Our fear of failure. Our fear of not being socially acceptable. Our fear of not being connected to the right people. Our desire to be the skinniest girl in the sorority will pale in comparison to that. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, convince us of the realities that we have talked about tonight. And in order for us to be convinced of that, that is going to take a work of your Spirit. Father, would you come and do that? In the name of Jesus, amen. See?